Thank you, Carol and Pat. I looked over there to see how many people were on that piano. I love that Thanksgiving hymn and done so well. I'm so very grateful for that. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading from Philippians, the fourth chapter. And you may want to have your Bibles open. We'll be looking at some specific verses, even though it will be on the screen at the time of the reading. Uh, A great passage of Scripture. Uh, This is the third and final in this series, Choosing Generosity. And uh, I'd like, before uh, I read the Scripture, for us to bow for a moment of prayer. Would you bow with me, please? Loving God, we are so very thankful. And it just seems like an extra blessing that when we do what we're supposed to, which is be thankful to you, it actually gives us an extra blessing. It lifts our burden. It puts life in perspective. It uh, re-solidifies you as the leader of our life. So we thank you. We thank you, we thank you for every precious gift, everything we have of any consequences from you. So we pray your blessings upon us and our neediness and brokenness, our sin, our illness, our grief, our war-torn world, our divided state, the tensions in Ferguson. We give them all to you, God. You are sovereign king above all things. So we ask you that you bless. And let your tender mercies renew us and bless us. By the power of Jesus Christ, set people free today. And help us, God, to arrive at a place called enough. A place of gratitude and joy. A place where we come to understand that your love is enough. Your forgiveness is enough. Your work is enough. Bless us. And give us understanding. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And I invite you to stand as God's word comes among us, as I read the scripture aloud. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I want us to uh, begin with those framing questions that I uh, ask you to ponder at the beginning of the worship service. How does choosing generosity help us distinguish between enough and more than enough? If you haven't pondered that question, look at one of the screens and ponder that question. How does choosing generosity help us distinguish between enough and more than enough? And how does choosing generosity help us get to the place of contentment and gratitude? Those are a couple of questions that we're going to explore this morning. Uh, As Brooke indicated in that wonderful children's time, uh, one of the things that needs to happen for us to get to gratitude and contentment and generosity is to somehow... Uh, in an emotional helicopter, get above our own culture and look down at our own lives and lifestyles to somehow extract ourselves from a culture of consumerism and look down on all of our habits and all of our appetites and all of our tastes and to see uh, how enough is really not a word that's in our vocabulary. More is a word that seems to always be hammering away at us. Uh, Several years ago, George Clooney starred in a movie called The Descendants. Now, I knew I'd get all the ladies' attention if I showed a picture of George Clooney. Um, And uh, this was a great movie because he was wrestling with how much is enough. And he was wrestling with uh, having some teenage children uh, bordering on young adulthood and trying to figure out uh, how to teach them responsibility uh, when it came to possessions. And he, and he had this, this powerful line in the movie where he said, uh, his character said, the trick in life is to give your children enough money to do something, but not enough money to do nothing. The trick is to give your children enough money to do something, but not so much money that they end up doing nothing. And he was talking about, interestingly enough, what Paul is describing in Philippians, the fourth chapter, that that space between poverty and too much. How do we land there, and how do we know when we've landed there, and how do we, how do we get to that place? It seems to me, as the holidays approach, that our society is awash in everything except contentment. We are awash in a lot of things. We are awash in a lot of commercials, but we're not awash in contentment. And so I would say, first off, that contentment and generosity are linked, and they, they, uh, they are more likely to come. They're more likely to come when we allow God to patch the hole in our hearts. I'm going to explain that. Contentment and generosity are more likely to come when we allow God to patch the hole in our hearts. I want to explain that by reminding you of a Bible story that every child here knows, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus was, was more than just a wee little man. He was a tax collector. He was commissioned by the Roman Empire, the invading, occupying Roman Empire, to gather ta- taxes from the Palestinian people, from the Jewish people. And it was his job to take 
at least as much as the Roman government required him to collect, but the Roman government sort of winked their eye and said, now, anything that you can extort or exact from them beyond what we require will be your fee, and so the tax gatherers would just gouge the people. He was dishonest. He was selfish. He was greedy. But that wasn't his biggest problem. His biggest problem was that he had a broken relationship with God. And after that broken relationship with God was fixed, when he met Jesus, he suddenly became generous and he suddenly became content. You see the connection? When God patched the hole in Zacchaeus' heart, Zacchaeus could suddenly practice generosity and know what contentment really is. Now, until God patched the hole in his heart, there was never enough money for Zacchaeus. It didn't matter how much poured in. Until God patched the hole in his heart, enough was never enough. And by the way, lest we build an incorrect bias here, it's not just rich people who can have a hole in their hearts. Poor people can have a hole in their hearts, and people who live in middle income can also. I want to show you a quote by Shane Claiborne. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a, a helpful one. He says, Some of us have worked on Wall Street, and some of us have slept on Wall Street. We are a community of struggle. Some of us are rich people trying to escape our loneliness. Some of us are poor folks trying to escape the cold. Some of us are addicted to drugs, and others are addicted to money. We are broken people who need each other and God. Shane Claiborne was saying that we all have holes in our hearts, and until we allow God to patch that hole, enough is never going to be enough. No matter what you pour in, it's never going to be enough. That's why verse 11 of our text is so interesting, and the word content is the key to this whole thing. Paul says, writing to the Philippians, not that I'm referring to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. Contentment. Now, here's something that will help us understand that statement. In Paul's day, the Greeks liked to use this word content or contentment. It was a popular word in Greek literature. And the Stoics especially liked that word. The Stoics were self-contained. They said, we don't need anybody. We don't need anything. We don't need a God. Everything you need is within yourself. And that's where that, that word Stoicism came into our English language because the Stoics really believed that. They believed in self-sufficiency. And they talked about being content. But Paul hijacked that word for Jesus. Paul grabbed that word from Greek literature of the day and he said, I don't want to talk to you about self-sufficiency because that's a joke. I want to talk to you about God-sufficiency. I want to talk to you about God-sufficiency. And that's where Paul said those famous words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through the empowering of Jesus Christ, the hole in my heart is healed, Paul says, and when that happens, enough is enough. And generosity flows out of that kind of heart because we can finally be satisfied with the most important things in life. So, 
Contentment and generosity come when God is allowed to heal and patch the hole in our hearts. But there's a second reason. Contentment and generosity come when our giving becomes sacramental. Now, that's not a word that gets used a lot in Baptist circles. Contentment and generosity come when our giving becomes sacramental. And by that I mean worshipful. By that I mean sacred and holy. Uh, When I was pastoring in St. Joseph many years ago, there was this little boy named Chris, and he was very inquisitive. He saw everything that happened. He never missed a thing. He said to his mom one day, he said, Mom, when they passed that plate in big church, he was talking about the sanctuary, and people put money in, and those people carry that money out, where does that money go? And she said, you know, this was a, this was a teachable moment. And she said, well, honey, that money goes to God. And without missing a beat, little Chris said, no, it doesn't. They take it downstairs and count them. I've seen them do it. Chris was also known to wander the halls. I hadn't mentioned that. Well, guess what? They were both right. They took the money downstairs and counted it, but it also went to God. Both those things are true. Paul was writing the Philippian letter from a prison, and very few churches were remembering him and his basic life needs, but the Philippian church did. And when Paul tried to find language of what it means to be on the receiving end of generosity, now remember, he'd been on the giving end. He'd organized this offering for the Jerusalem church. But it's a whole different story where you're on the receiving end of generosity. The only way Paul could describe what it is to be on the receiving end of generosity was to resort to language that was sacramental and worshipful. Listen in verse 18 where he says, What you brought by way of Epaphroditus, your gifts were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know what he's saying there? Your financial gifts were a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. They were a sweet fragrance. They were a blessed offering. Now we know that language of the altar was used to describe what Jesus has done for us. Gave his life on the cross. The outpouring of his love and forgiveness is described in scripture in language of the altar. And Paul says, that's exactly what it's like when God's people share. Paul said, I want you to know that what you're doing financially is like crawling up on the altar and giving yourselves to God. It's a sweet thing. It's a good thing. This is us. Every time we take an offering, every time we make financial commitments, this is us crawling up on the altar saying, this is God's, this is holy, this is special. Two years ago, when we prepared to launch our church's new praise and worship service in the 1045 
worship spot. We had a blank slate. We had the opportunity to create worship in a brand new way. But one of the things that I insisted on as we made our plans was that we would still pass the plate in our Sunday morning service at 1045 as we do at 815. Now, I know it's fashionable, and there are churches that simply have boxes in the back, and I respect that. That may work for them, but I, as pastor, believe that the passing of the offering plate is itself an act of worship. Whether we're putting anything in that day or not, it is an act of worship. It is sacramental. It is what God is doing. And by the way, it is an offering, not a collection. I have a pastor friend who said collection is what the IRS does. Offering is what the church does. And I like that distinction because when the IRS writes me, I don't have a choice. But we always have choices with God. And it's an offering of love. So that when the deacons pass the plate, they're not coming apologetically, kind of embarrassed. This is a holy moment in worship. This is a part of worship. This isn't just a filler, a transition time to let uh, orchestra go down or to get the pastor ready to preach. This is holy time. This is as much worship as sermon or prayer or song. And we all pass the plate, even if it's not our week to give, even if we don't have it to give, or even if, like my wife and I, we give electronically. We pass the plate knowing that we all have a part in it. We all get to be a part of sharing in this worship opportunity. And we, we do that with joy. And even though we give electronically, every time we have an offering, I stop and think about how much God has given us, what a privilege it is to give, and how much good these collected offerings are going to do. And I get a blessing from that worship experience. A man went to his pastor once and uh, said, I've got some extra money. Uh, I'd like to know what the church would like to do uh, for the kingdom of God, and I'd be willing to, to give money toward it. The pastor came back to him in a couple of days and said, I'm so excited. We're going to renovate all the women's restrooms in the church. And the guy went, really? Okay. Nice to have nice restrooms. And I would probably start with the women's restrooms too. So the man gave $1,000 to the church and he gave the other $99,000 that he'd planned to give to some other ministry that was more God-sized and more kingdom-sized because he believed that what he was giving was joyful and sacrificial and an act of worship. When Paul wanted to talk about giving money, he didn't resort to language of the, of the accountant or the language of commerce of his day. He resorted to the language of the altar and worship. A sweet offering, something God-sized, because investing in kingdom ministry 
is life-changing. We are doing something important here. It is God-sized. It is kingdom-sized. Lives are being transformed through the ministry of First Baptist Church. What we are doing impacts eternity. And it is the joy of worship that we get to take part in it. Let's pray together.